Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 654 of the podcast and it is Tuesday 8th of November 2022 as I record this. In today's in between episode, I'm talking to James Blatch about his lessons learned from writing and marketing a second book in a series, marketing tips for new authors coming into self-publishing and for authors who want to relaunch an older series, as well as talking about the self-publishing launchpad course from Self-Publishing Formula, which is open now as this goes out with lessons taught by Mark Dawson, as well as James and the team. Now, I'm an affiliate of the course because it is excellent. And in fact, I closed down my own self-publishing course a few years back because this one was better. (laughs) And they re-record the modules so it stays up to date, which is super. So as an affiliate, if you buy through my link, I receive a percentage of the sale at no extra cost to you. So if you're interested in self-publishing Launchpad, the course, check it out at thecreativepen.com forward slash launchpad all one word so thecreativepen.com forward slash launchpad or just go over to selfpublishingformula.com if you don't want to use my link no worries (laughs) right let's get into the interview james blatch is a historical military thriller author He's also the co-founder of Self-Publishing Formula, Fuse Books, Hello Books, and the co-host of The Self-Publishing Show. So welcome back to the podcast, James. Hello, Joe. Thank you so much for having me back on. I'm excited to be here, as always. Oh, yeah. Well, it's good to talk to you again. Now, you on the show last year, May 2021, which I guess is almost 18 months now, talking about the launch of your first novel, The Final Flight. And now you have a second book out in the series, Dark Flight. And I wanted to talk to you a bit about this because many authors obviously put out their first book and they do all this stuff and then they put out a second book in the series and it's quite different. So I wanted to start with what did you do differently with this second book in terms particularly of the creative writing side, since you must have learned a lot yeah I did I I mean writing the first one was a ramshackle ridiculously long-winded process of me having no idea what I was doing and gradually over four years probably of the intense part of it learning parts about the trade and what I should be doing and being directed and finding it hard to learn and rewriting and rewriting and I had a book that was huge and unwieldy 210,000 words at one point And then a book that was ridiculously short, 50,000 words that made no sense because I got the wrong idea of what that (laughs) show don't tell meant. And then eventually got to this point where the book with some help got there. And I'm proud of the book. I I think it's a kind of story from my heart type book. Book two, honestly, it could not have been different. I had the idea. I don't know what point somewhere when I was marketing and releasing book one, I started to think about this idea. I had the story fully formed in my mind. I wrote it down over two pages on a Word document of the whole story, and that never really changed. And I wrote it in a fraction of the time. I wrote it probably in nine months. 
um, for me. And it didn't change very much, even in edits, which is so far apart from the first book. So everyone said to me the second book will be easier. And I hadn't anticipated quite what a different experience it would be. I mean, it was a slightly different book, I'll say, Jay. I think the first book is like that book from the heart about my dad and everything. And book two is much more influenced by me reading in genre, reading Clive Custler and then Dayton and trying to work out what it is in these books, these multi-selling books that people just burn through the series. That's the type of thing commercially that's going to work for me when I've got 10 books out in my frail dotage uh, selling for me. Not, I can't do each one's can't be kind of a a Blatch family blockbuster type thing. So it does, it was a different type of book, I think. But anyway, yeah, it was a ridiculously short experience. <laughs> well, nine months is still not ridiculously That's short. That's true. But, yeah, but I do want to come back. You said there that you got the wrong idea about show, don't tell. So can you expand that? Like, what did you think it was and what did you get wrong? Because it is one of these things that new authors find really difficult. I did too. Yeah, so I've been from one extreme to the other. So I went through writing the first book and writing the first draft, which is, as I say, quite long and unwieldy. Then writing a second draft that stripped out everything to the point where, because Stephen King's very big on this, that you trust your reader. And I think that's a really good thing. You trust your reader. You don't have to spell everything out. But I did it to such a degree that the reader was confused. It was confusing narrative. So then I did it again. And this time I got probably some bad advice at the time, but turned out to be quite good. Someone told me after my scene, they'd read the scene and they would say, yeah, but what, what are people thinking? I need to see what people are thinking. So after almost every sentence, there was some italics of internal dialogue from that character of why they just said that. Uh, and what they were thinking, which might have been different from what they said out loud to somebody as life is. And that made the book very, very long and full of these italics of internal dialogue, which is obviously not what you want to do. But it was a brilliant way of me then understanding for my final draft of taking basically take everything out in italics. You don't have to tell the reader what people are thinking. You have to make sure that there's something what they've said indicates that. So show that tell it, I think is a really nuanced concepts it's much more difficult to explain quickly and easily but I think I went both ways on it on my journey to getting somewhere now where I catch myself now writing I'm drafting book three now and I catch myself occasionally either over explaining or under explaining something think yeah but what's the action what's the story bit that will tell that to the reader show it to the reader that's the right word yeah, it's definitely one of the hardest concepts and yet it is the thing that makes a big difference. And But also, I guess I would say like your experience with that first book to the second book is exactly what happens. And I think by book five, like I really felt book five was where something really changed for me when a lot of pieces fall into place. And this year, actually, I went back and rewrote the first three novels in my series because I felt my writing and moved on so much. So <laughs> it's kind of crazy how much you learn, even though you think you know it all. So I, I love that you learned so much but what about marketing because of course you're part of SPF you know a lot about marketing and yet marketing a first in series is so much easier than a second in series so what did you do to market the second in series? So I wrote the first one set in the UK in the 60s at very Royal Air Force based and I always knew that would be a hard sell in America you know that I run Fuse books as well with Mark and so I have some experience marketing books and I know the American commercial audience is quite fussy I would say so 
One of the series we market has a Royal Marine who's a commando, sort of part of the Royal Navy in the UK. But when I advertise in America, I always call him a Marine because I don't get the clicks when I say Royal Marine. I don't think Americans know what that is and it turns them off a little bit. So I think selling an REF book in America was difficult. So a commercial choice uh, was that book two would be set entirely in America with an American uh, character. Funnily enough, there was an American exchange guy in book one, so I used him. Mm. And it's, it's set entirely at Edwards Air Force Base. So that was the idea. And I thought, well, what I'll end up doing is I'll be running ads in America to Dark Flight and in the UK to Final Flight. And that'll work. Now, Final Flight marketing in the first year paid me a profit of about 900 and something pounds, nearly a thousand pounds, which I wasn't expecting. I was expecting simply to be audience building, to be spending maybe a thousand pounds a month on advertising, but to make only that back. But be finding audience and readers who would go on to read my books in the future. But actually, I made a small profit, which I was really pleased about. So with book two, I sort of thought on that equation, well, book two will be profit for me already, because if they go on and read book two, it hasn't turned out like that. I'm actually about the same, although last month was better, but I'm still making just a little profit every month, £120 or something a month, Mm. Um, not much more. And I think that's because now that I think about it, having one book for one audience, one book for another audience is two book ones right? Uh, and two book ones that don't really have the read through. So I haven't done anything massively different. I'm big Facebook ad runner. I'm starting to spend more time with Amazon ads and I have a mailing list building. So I do all those traditional self, self-publishing things. But I think probably the bottom line here is I need more books. I need books four, five and six to get mm. to the point where that might work for me. And I need to make them more similar. So that it, I think book one and book two are quite different for the reasons I outlined earlier. Books two onwards are going to be quite similar. Right. Oh, well, that's interesting. A lot of people adjust their series later on, don't they? And almost make their first book like a prequel, almost like a prequel, uh, yeah. a book, book zero that's become trendy. Yes. It's like people make a book yeah. zero and then book two becomes book one, which again, I don't think is necessary. And almost your problem is you know too much and you have so much information in your head. And I know how that feels because it's definitely happened to me over the years. It's like, I just know all the options. But so the character carries over. There's a character in book two that's in book one. So is it not a episodic series? Is it a series of standalones? Yeah, they're definitely, I definitely have written them so they could all be, I mean, there's only two and a half so far, but hopefully all my books, you can pick up any one of them, a bit like James Bond, you can pick up any Bond book, and it's a standalone story. It does make sense to read the story in series, because there are things that happen through Bond's life and episodes, but it's not necessary. And I think commercially, that's quite advantageous. There's, there's, you know, there's pros and cons, of course, because that serial, you know, there's certainly in the romance genre, that what happens next serial works really well. And so I've deliberately done that. And funnily enough, book three is going to be my novella, that's the idea. It's a novella. In fact, I passed 25,000 words today. I'm doing NaNoWriMo. Mm. I should get it done. I'm about to start rewriting it, but that'll take the rest of the month. And that is set. That is a prequel. It's kind of going to be a book zero. So the character from book one, the main character, book one, it's his first tour in Iraq. And I've chosen Iraq because Iraq works for both Britain and America. Mm. They know where Iraq is in America <laughs> and they've heard of it. And although it's historical, I think that will be a market, it'd be an easier market than something set in sort of provincial England. 
Yes. Yeah. It's really interesting. So you've got this love of this military air force and flying and things that comes from your passion completely. But then you've also got this business head on as well. So where are you in terms of how much of this genre is love and how much is this research into what sells and writing to market? I think it's more love than it is commercial. I think it's it's me writing what I love and then thinking, well, what's the best commercial approach I can do? So let's set this book in America. Let's do a book one that will work in both America and Britain. So those those decisions are commercial. But I am writing what I really want to write at the moment. And funnily enough, I've just had a video call with one of our authors in Fuse Books about this very subject who's been writing books he loves, but they don't do as well as another author in the stable who writes very classic kind of MI6 washed up agent type John Milton, Jack Reacher type things. And he's now having to mull over that sort of Venn diagram, mm. <laughs> writing something that he wants to write, but is going to be commercial. And that's a difficult thing to find. And I haven't really done that, Joe, to be honest. I'm writing what I really, each story I keep coming up with is because I'm really interested in that. And I love getting under the teeth of it and learning more about a subject I already know quite a lot about. If I was going to be brutally commercial, I guess I would be writing an MI6 agent. Um, maybe I will one day, but at the moment it's, I don't think I could do it still where I am at the moment. I'm so busy with everything else. That writing is still hard for me to sit down and do. It's much easier this month because I'm really, really getting into NaNoWriMo, but it's otherwise I prevaricate and don't do anything for months. And I think if it was something my heart wasn't completely in, I would find that I think it's a non-starter probably for me. So yeah, but I think that's really good that you said that because, look, you have a day job and your day job is all the things you do, self-publishing formula, Fuse Books, Hello Books, the self-publishing show. But you're a busy guy as a day job and write it like you mentioned, what did you say, 150, £120 pound profit a month or something. Hmm. This is not a full-time income and it's not intended to be. And I think this is such an important view that we want to say to people listening is none of us are suggesting you have to be a full-time author like it doesn't have to be 100% of your income. It can be dinner out every month. It can be a mortgage payment a year. It can be your full-time living. But equally, lots of us do other things, like this podcast is one of my other things. We both do courses. So I want people to feel like that. And I've had too many people recently say to me, oh, there's so much pressure in the indie community to be a full-time fiction author for example I'm like no 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 let's not go there right I mean and you I don't think you feel like that's ever what you're intending to be right no I, I completely agree with that and I think there are lots of other milestones that you can use and I, I like it when people publish in so I, I'm coming up on 10,000 book sales soon and I'm coming up on a thousand reviews on my first book and these are really important milestones for me 10,000 books is 10,000 people who've who I don't know, most of whom I don't know, have bought and read my book and been, as far as I can tell from the reviews, relatively entertained by it. Now, that's not going to buy me dinner, but it's important to me. So I think, you know, what? why are you writing? You've always been like this, Joe. I think you've always said, what do you want to get out of this? And it's opened my eyes a little bit to having that conversation with people more often at conferences and stuff. What's your aim here? And if they say, I want to make money to pay my mortgage, or I want to, I want to be rich, that's a different conversation with them than I really love writing. Or this book of my heart, and I want yes. to get that into the world. And actually, that's the more common answer. 
especially for new authors. And I think this is what we're going to move into now is the course from SPF, which is now called Launchpad, which does aim to help new authors get their books into the world or help existing authors revisit the basics. Because even if you're not intending to (laughs) make loads of money at this, we all want to get our books into the hands of readers. And as you said, there are other things that are important to us. And one of those is usually at least getting some reviews, having a great quality book, reaching readers. So yeah, I think this is really important. So let's get into Launchpad. So the course was called 101. So I wanted to ask why this rebrand? Yeah, so self-publishing 101, we came up with, like everything in SPF, came up with probably in about 10 seconds at some point when we needed to name it. And I don't think any of us really love the name. For a start, it's very American and we're very British. So 101 is an Americanism, which is nothing wrong with that, but I'm not sure it was a perfect fit for us. And also, it seemed to me to say, this is a course that will show you where all the things you need to learn are. Uh, there's KDP and there's MailChimp. But what this course does is said, okay, so this is the difference between MailChimp, ConvertKit, MailerLite. This is what you need to use those programs for. Anyone can set up the program and log in and set up a price plan and join that. This is why you're doing it. This is how you get to turn yourself into a friend of readers and show your personality and stuff. So really under the surface of 101. So that's why we came up with Launchpad. It's something that will, once you follow it, it'll not just have those things in place, have them in place and give you maximum chance of finding readers, which might be for you to make a profit, or it might be simply that your books will find readers, which is where I am at the moment, and I'm delighted with it. No, that's great. And to me, having looked at the course and had a look at what it covers, it is more than like 101 implies that someone doesn't know anything. Whereas I also think that the idea of a launch pad is if you are someone who has a number of books or you've come out of traditional publishing, for example, you might be an experienced writer or you might have some books already. But what you don't have is a sort of launching into more of the self-publishing world and taking control of all these different things. And so I feel like the 101 brand, as you've said, is kind of it's just not enough. So I think this rebrand is a good idea. And I definitely think, I mean, I, I went through it. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I mean, we can all do with revisiting the basics, <laughs> to be honest, yeah. even years later. And of course, when I started, there wasn't any of this around anyway. So it's all good. But you mentioned a few things there. You dropped some words like ConvertKit and MailerLite mm. and MailChimp. And people are like, ah, ah, stop talking to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there are a lot of tools. There are a lot of decisions, like which platforms, whether to be exclusive, whether to pay for things or learn to do it yourself. So how can authors decide what's best for them? How do they navigate these choices? Well, I think it starts with what what you're using that service for. And that's what I mean really about Launchpad, the difference between 101 and Launchpad. So they're all email service providers, those ones. That was just one example. But most authors and Launchpad will tell you that you need a mailing list, a newsletter you send out to your readers every few weeks or whatever frequency you want. And it, and in the course, we explain why that's so important to you. And it is very important for things like launching your books later. But what do you put in the emails? You know, you have an email sequence that you send out to new readers who've joined your list because they've read a link in the back of your book. What do you say to them? That's what our course really focuses on about that relationship building, about turning a reader into a fan and a fan into a super fan, that sort of 
structure. So in the end, your choice of whether you use MailChimp or ConvertKit or MailChimp is irrelevant almost. You can use any of them, to be honest. There's a tech library, which I, I mainly do, and that is nuts and bolts of how to actually do that and put the email together. But the key information that you're paying for, really, in this course is the purpose behind it. So I think once you understand that, I think that choice about what mail service provider you use, what domain registration service you use, even if you don't know what I'm talking about now, those choices become easier when you understand why you're making them. And I guess, I mean, it's kind of a bigger question is, I mean, people say, oh, self-publishing is really hard and complicated. There are all these things I have to know. I have to know what an EPUB file is so I can upload it to Amazon, for example. And and I feel like there's this big barrier that, that a lot of people feel. And I guess I always do say to people, look, you at least have to be willing to give these things a go. I mean, have you noticed any particular mindset points that are important for people coming into this? Uh, I mean, I don't know what an EPUB file is, by the way. I mean, <laughs> I know I have to spit one out of my formatting program and I upload it to KDB. Who knows what it is? Yes, I think you get a couple of types of people who approach this. I often meet people, and I'm thinking now, people like Deborah Holland, who's a sweet romance writer, Andrea Demansky, who writes also writes contemporary romance. And those two told me that they're just not technical at all. But the reason the course worked for them is they paused it, pressed the buttons that Mark said, ran it a bit longer, pressed the other buttons, did created that first email very much like the way Mark described it. And they did it like that. They literally followed it bit by bit. Whereas other people, I think, come at it from a much more sort of hands-on and techie point of view of uh, perhaps don't need a lot of that hand-holding. And in terms of your question, I mean, have I noticed a particular way that people go with this? I mean, is it it's more technical now than it used to be? I don't know. I, I think one thing I'll say is when I first joined Mark and started getting into this world, it took me 12 months, a year, just to kind of catch up with the language that you and Mark spoke. I didn't yeah. really understand what you were talking about most of the time. I got ticked off by Mark a few times for not and when we started a podcast. I didn't understand the purpose of the podcast or how you marketed a podcast. And it took a year of just being around, of just having conversations, of being in the Facebook groups for it to seep in, to get under my skin a little bit and understand the culture in which indie publishing operates. And I think that's an important thing to do. I think if you come in cold, from trad or wherever, and you do our course by itself, it's probably not enough. There's got to be some amount of involvement in the Facebook groups and the discussions and paying attention to the environment and let that soak in a bit. Mm, yeah, the language is something really important. And it's funny because, uh, I, I mean, we've all done this in different arenas, right? Like I remember when <laughs> it was probably about a decade ago now and I was like, I really need to get to grips with my finances and pensions and things like that, like superannuation mm. and investing. And like I wanted to understand shares and I wanted to understand all that stuff. And so I started reading and listening to financial podcasts and reading financial magazines and books and Money Week and the Financial Times. And I literally did not understand <laughs> So much of the stuff. But then little by little, you learn how to do these things and then it's not complicated anymore. And it's almost like it's the decision behind it, which is the important thing. And then your attitude to learning. And I, I think that's the main thing, isn't it? None of this stuff 
is rocket science, <laughs> really. It is creative work reaching readers. And I mean, at the end of the day, the writing the book is still the challenge and the marketing, I think, is a challenge. But you can learn all this stuff. It is just a language. And what's great now, of course, is there are lots of courses. Obviously, I've been podcasting way longer than you, but you have quite a popular podcast. There's lots of ways for authors to learn things, but I think courses and investing in education is definitely something that both of us have done over the years. But I did want to ask about marketing. We've mentioned a few things for marketing. Given that you know so many authors and you talk to some, what are some of the things that you consider to be most important? You've mentioned email lists, but uh, I know you particularly care about TikTok, but is it actually working? (laughs) Yeah, TikTok is definitely actually working. I mean, obviously, it's like all these things. For some people, it's going great guns. And for other people, it's not working at all. And for most of us, we're sort of in between that point. When I put time and effort into TikTok, it works for me. I sell books organically, and I can prove that with the nuts and bolts. I do a lot of benchmarking with my sales. And I know people who are selling books well, who've got to number one in the entire store because people have picked up their books on TikTok and started moving, you know, pushing them. So TikTok is definitely working, but that's kind of its own thing at the moment. In terms of the other sort of fundamentals that I've learned, I think probably the biggest single thing is once you've got the rest of your platform right, and by platform, I sort of mean your cover, your blurb, your formatting of your book, your price, your mailing list you've got all those bits and pieces in place i think the free days you get with ku or putting a a book to free and using list services like free books in hello books which we run and bookbub and having a sort of cycle based around those is 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 of course the word i suppose i think it's absolutely part and parcel of the way that i sell my books and sell books for few so understanding that i think is a really number one thing uh for me sort of Obviously, we perhaps don't talk about it enough, but it's a part of the ecosystem you really need to understand. But yeah, I can talk about TikTok if you want more. I'm, I, I can talk about TikTok for about an hour, so you'll have to. Yeah, me I know. Yeah, well, I, I would love to hear about TikTok, but I have been very clear <laughs> on this show that I am not a fan of TikTok. So go and listen to the self-publishing show <laughs> to find out more about that. But I do think, like, the one of the most important things with marketing is choosing what works for you. So it's really good that you mentioned there using your KU free days or having a perma-free book. So my mum writes. Uh, well, she did write. She's stopped now as Penny Appleton. So there's five books in her little sweet romance series and I manage them for her but all I literally do every 90 days is put another five free days on every single one of those books (laughs) that's literally what I do and it gives her a couple of hundred bucks every month just from like just doing that and that actually doesn't cost any money obviously if you want to use free booksy or hello books then That does cost a little bit of money, but not too much. But even the basics, and of course, permanently free if you're a wide author. I've had permanently free Stone of Fire, the first in my series, for (laughs) hilariously almost a decade now. (laughs) So, And I do exactly the same thing. I just have a free booksy like a couple of times a year, maybe three times a year, and I just do that. So there are you don't have to do TikTok. So to mention TikTok, it's a very active form of marketing, whereas there are more, I guess, more relaxed forms of marketing where you can just almost set and forget these things or just pop in every few months, right? Yes. Yeah. Just have a calendar. And I've got quite a few books I look after now with Fuse as well as mine. And one of the things I'm trying to do is be better about having the calendar together so we know when they're coming around. But there's one book series in particular that I market that 
only really makes money through those periods of sales and in between sales tail off. So when we can force it in front of readers, readers love it and immediately buy the other books. But getting the Facebook ad, the paid ads when the book's for sale, getting them to read book one is really difficult. So for that series, this method of putting the book out for free is is crucial to it. Mm. Uh, And the book I'm writing now, I am writing to be a perma-free book. And the idea is that it will be maybe in 10 years' time when I'm back on here, if you're still doing the podcast, we can say, I've got (laughs) books been free for 10 years. (laughs) Oh, goodness. I I just can't imagine that at the moment, to be honest. But (laughs) I did want to ask that. I mean, we've both mentioned some examples and we have naughtily only mentioned romance and thrillers. So the question that many people often ask is, does all this self-publishing stuff, does it only work for the big genres in fiction like fantasy, sci-fi, thrillers, romance? It, it just doesn't work for anyone else, right? Well, we always have examples when somebody says to us, does it work for children's books? And we know it does because we have examples of children's authors who go great guns using the methodology that we talk and what we teach is not a spe- you know, special, we call ourselves self-publishing formula. Like we've got some secret formula like uh was it the Colonel's secret recipe? We don't have that. We just know the nuts and bolts of the ecosystem, put that all together in one place for you. But yeah, using that, we know that children's books can be sold like that. Nonfiction as well. I mean, often I think you'll say this as well. I think nonfiction is easier to market. It's yeah. easier to advertise <laughs> than fiction because you're basically answering a question most of the time. And advertising, when you're putting keywords together by posing that question, is easier to find your readers when they or your, your potential readers. Because when they type in, how do I do X? And your thing pops up, you're answering that. So I think that's, that, that is easier. And it's absolutely necessary to get all this stuff right for nonfiction in the same way. Having said that, Joe, clearly, and this is a conversation I've had today with one of our authors and views. If you write a book that looks and feels like Jack Reacher and fits neatly into a big selling genre, life is a bit easier for you. And then if you write, in my case, historical military fiction, because you've got a smaller potential audience. So that goes without saying. But the great thing about the Internet, better than the old days of putting billboards up in in London on a busy thoroughfare, uh, is that you can much more easily target your advertising spend on people who are at least likely to be in your niche. But you've got to understand how to do that. And that's, I guess, where we come in. Mm. And then uh, we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask you, I mean, we are at a point where a lot of traditionally published authors are getting their rights back and some people might be coming back into publishing now they've maybe heard about the indie way. And it's it's also, or someone like me who did this more than a decade ago and wants to relaunch. And I do think that relaunching and using the stuff from Launchpad can really help. But what have you seen work in terms of if people are coming in with books that might have been more than a decade old, for example, what are the types of things that people are doing to relaunch those books? Well, the obvious things are to recover them, re-blurb them because language changes in advertising. But I think when you've got a series recovered in modern looking covers, you effectively treat it as a new series, but you'll be advertising to people. You don't have to be, um, you don't have to put any reference to it being 10 years old because that person, it'll be new to them, right? So, and I think it's really important to do that because not only during our lifetime, but actually after we've died as well, these books potentially can make money for us and for our estates. But again, the mistake people perhaps make is if they've got, if they've changed genres over time, you're 
ecosystem, I hate using these kind of buzzwords, but I can't think of a better one at the moment, the sort of ecosystem you've created might be working for one genre and you actually need a different set, not a different set of tools, but a different version of those tools for a different genre. So what I mean by that, give you an example, make it clearer. If you've got a Facebook page and you run adverts and you've been selling your thriller series on that, if you then go back to the sci-fi series you wrote 10 years ago, which you want to dust off and relaunch, you need a new Facebook page to do that because you can't retarget the people who are connecting with your thriller audience and you're going to weaken your ad spend there and probably not get so good results. That's the sort of thing that we go into in Launchpad. It does become a bit of a pain, that sort of multi-genre advertising. But if you, I don't know, if your series is the same genre over the years, then I think it's a coat of paint, isn't it? That uh, (laughs) does the job. What was funny when I re-edited my book one, which I'd written in 2009, and we're recording this in 2022, and I had language, like I was trying to explain what a lot of flying helicopter with this sort of, with an arm that would reach out and do something. And I'd done this really long, complicated thing. And then now, of course, you just say drone and people know what a drone is. But like back in 2009, (laughs) this was not a mainstream word. And I had this whole sort of virtual reality thing, but I didn't use the term virtual reality because again, it just wasn't known. So it is quite funny to read back how things have changed. So I mean, you mentioned recovering, reblurbing, but I do think a light re-edit <laughs> can go a long way, even in just, oh, I know. And I had words around, it was early days of smartphones and I used the words smartphone. And of course, who uses that anymore? Yeah. <laughs> we <just say> phone. <laughs> so that's one of the advantages of writing historical fiction is that it tends not to date in the same way I mean that's that's interesting at what point does something become historical yeah no totally and Mm. its own right become quite interesting and fun to read I quite like reading old books where they describe something and you think well that's a sat nav but they've got I mean there's (laughs) a a, there's a sat nav in a bond book he describes this moving map which, of course, people are reading think, wow, that's ridiculous, isn't it? How wow, would that even work? <laughs> now we've all got it in our back pockets. Uh, oh, but yes. I wouldn't want that Bond book re-edited. No, I think you're right. And that is a good question. Like, when does something become historical? In the same way, like Stephen King will only be considered one of the finest writers of the generation once he's dead. Like, I feel mm. like while he's still alive, I wonder whether he'll get a a Pulitzer or I don't know, whatever, something when when he's gone, because in his lifetime, he hasn't been appreciated so much. But it's so interesting how history changes things. But that's a completely different conversation. (laughs) So yeah, We've mentioned the course, obviously, Launchpad. So it's not open all the time. So tell us when it's open. And then also, I guess, how often it is. So we're going to open it twice a year. And what we tend to do is we take on students, however many, always a few hundred, and they basically go through the course as newbies together in the Facebook group with all the older people, the sort of more experienced veterans in there already. And we feel that works really well. We tend to do it in the autumn and in the summer. So it's going to open on Wednesday the 9th and it'll stay open to the end of the month till the end of November, probably December the 1st, I think might be the day when it closes up and then it'll open again in June next year. Okay, um, so to end of November 2022, and then the next time June 2023. Well, it might, might, be earlier, might be earlier than that, might be May. We should be better at fixing these release <laughs> dates, but they we do run ourselves, I'll be honest about it, we run our company a little bit on the fly the whole time. And I think that suits us because none of us want to feel like we're in a nine-to-five job 
being slaves to timetables. So, but the downside is we can't firmly say to you what our release dates are next year. And I think if I was in a corporate environment, that would have all been nailed down by now. Um, but it will but be. We're not. <laughs> we're not. Thank goodness. I don't want to be in a corporate environment. But uh, there is something to be said for some organisation. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And as I said, I have had a look at the course and I am a very happy affiliate of the course. So my link, if people want to go, is thecreativepen.com forward slash launchpad. And if people want to find out more about you, or also the podcast and everything, where can they find you and the podcast online? Uh, so we have a website which is selfpublishingformula.com and that's the home of the podcast as well, the self-publishing show. And I think all things there, you'll find links to the courses there as well. We have a blog every week uh, and so on. And me, well, I'm at jamesblatch.com. Should you be interested in very exciting tales of jet aviation in the 1960s? It's got to be jet aviation. I don't do propellers very often. Oh, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, James. That was great. Loved it. Thanks, Joe. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion with James. And if you'd like to check out the Launchpad course with my affiliate link, it's at thecreativepen.com forward slash launchpad. And if the course is closed again, if you're listening to this later, there will be a wait list you can sign up for to be notified of when it opens again. So I'll be back on Monday with the usual show, talking to crime author Rachel McLean about five steps to author success and how she changed her mindset, then deconstructed a popular genre in order to write books that readers wanted. And in the process, she won an award and grew her author income substantially. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.